This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to Session 16, Flesh vs. Spirit, Part B, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sewer Fellowship. So in this session, we're looking at flesh versus spirit. This is something that has, uh, we've seen come up in various passages, especially in Paul's writings, where he talks about this battle being waged between the flesh and the spirit. And what we're asking in this session is what exactly does that mean um, when Paul uses this kind of language? And how do we engage in this battle (laughs) in a realistic way? So the first half of the session, part A, we kind of looked into some core definitions. What does it mean when Paul uses this word flesh? Uh, talked a bit about that and did a bit of a rabbit trail talking about Greek dualism and comparing that with what Paul says, right? In Greek thinking, uh, where there's the tendency to uh, distinguish between the physical realm and the non-physical realm. And we came to the conclusion that that's not quite what the Bible has in mind when it's talking about flesh versus spirit. It's not trying to pit the physical world against the spiritual world, um, so to speak. Um, And as an aside, uh, I read an interesting essay this past week by Gordon Fee in which he was arguing that every single time Paul uses the word pneumatikos or um, related terms, meaning spiritual, right? That, that in, in English, this, this word spiritual can mean so many different things, right? Um, some, you ask, go and ask someone on the street, uh, are you into spirituality? You know, someone might say, oh, I'm a spiritual person, but they don't want to go anywhere near uh, a Bible, right? Because uh, that's, in English, the word spiritual and the Bible don't necessarily go together. There's lots of different spirits out there that people are into, right? Not just God's spirit. So what Gordon Fee is arguing is that every single time Paul uses this term, spiritual, he's actually, he's talking about the spirit of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? It's not just spirituality as this thing about connecting with the transcendent out there somewhere. Um, no, in, the, in scripture, the language is very specific. So one example, uh, I'm, I liked this example that he brought up and I'll look at it just to kind of frame what we're talking about here. First Corinthians chapter two. Let's start in, uh, yeah, verse, verse 14. Here's an example of how this works. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What does it mean for something to be spiritually discerned? You ever wondered that? I mean, that, those, it sounds like pretty words, but what does it mean? Yeah, and that's exactly what Gordon Fee is arguing. He says, you know, we, 
We do our, ourselves a disservice by translating this too literally from the Greek because what Paul is saying is the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they can only be discerned through the Holy Spirit. They can only be discerned by those who have the Holy Spirit. They can only be understood through the Spirit. So spiritually discerned means through the Holy Spirit. So, yeah. Anyway, that's just an example. Um, but again, the point is that when Paul is talking, when Paul uses this term spirit, when he uses the term spiritual, spiritually, um, all these different things, he's talking about the spirit of God. He's not talking about the non-physical realm as opposed to the physical realm. He's not talking about, um, you know, uh, my human spirit uh, as being opposed to my human flesh. Uh, he's talking about the spirit of God. We're, gonna, we're going to jump on that in this session, um, jump off of that, I should say. Uh, so yeah, today what I want to focus on is Romans chapter 7. We'll look at a few related passages, but that's going to be the bulk of what we'll talk about today is Romans 7. Um, and there's then from that, we're going to discuss some of the different models of spirituality that are out there. We'll talk about the rabbinic Yetzer Hara versus the Yetzer Hatov, um, and, and different streams within Christianity, uh, Reform spirituality versus Wesleyan spirituality versus Keswick spirituality, things like that. But we're gonna we're gonna start by looking at Romans chapter seven. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans seven, and we're gonna start. Let's start in verse. 13. Romans 7, 13. Paul says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. We're jumping in the middle of a conversation, of course, but <laughs> let's try, we'll try and make sense of it as best we can um, going on from here. Um, Let's start in verse 14, actually. We'll go from 14 to the end of the chapter. For we know that the Torah is spiritual, but I am... So what does that word spiritual mean? Is Paul saying the Torah is non-physical? Metaphysical? No, he's saying the, Tor the Torah is pertaining to the Holy Spirit, right? The Torah is spiritual, but what am I? He says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So this, this is this battle, spirit versus flesh, right? Which side is the Torah on? Side of the spirit. Which side am I on? Side of the flesh, right? And it's a battle between them. Let's go on. So yeah, we know that the Torah is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, with the Torah, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a, a, a law, a nomos, a Torah, uh, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the Torah of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. So then I myself serve the Torah of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A couple interesting things. Hopefully we'll tease some of these out uh, a little later in this session. But one thing I just wanted to point out here is notice that the, Paul, who's talking, uses this word ego. Ego. It's where we get the word ego, right? I. It's a Greek word for I, me. The ego is divided. And the Torah is divided. There's two different Torahs he's talking about in this passage, right? The Torah of God and the Torah of sin and death. And then there's the, the, the me that wants to follow God, and then there's the me that keeps doing the opposite. So there's a divided Torah and a divided ego in this passage. Anyway, we'll talk a bit more about that in a second. This is an interesting passage. Um, I wrote a paper on this, uh, when was that, two years ago? Something like that. Uh, I discovered, first of all, the book of Romans is probably the most commented on piece of literature in Western civilization. Secondly, Romans chapter 7 is probably one of the most commented on passages out of the book of Romans. So this is like... This is like the darkest, thorniest part of the thicket when it comes to Pauline theology. <laughs> um, what is Paul talking about in this passage, right? Um, is Paul describing his own experience, his present experience as he's writing this? Or is he describing the experience of someone else? Or maybe his past? This is what he was... How he felt before? Is it hypothetical? Is it literal? Is it what? Right? Like what? What? What's? What's he doing here? Um, he doesn't say. He says, "I myself." So, you would think that that would include Paul. <laughs> um, but there are scholars who argue it. No, it doesn't. Paul is using. Uh, a uh, figure of speech, uh, personification, where he's personifying someone else. And this was common in Greek literature. Um, I'm not going to get into all those weeds, but I do have a couple questions that arise from this. Um, what does this passage mean for us in our spiritual walk? What, what does it mean? Does it mean that it's normal to struggle with sin? For believers? Or is Paul saying, no, this is, 
this is the way it used to be, but you should get past this. There are three main categories of interpretation of this passage. First category, Paul is describing his own present experience as a mature believer. So in this category of thinking, you know, Paul just talks about, you know, I want to do what's right, but I keep doing evil. That's just the way all, that's just the way life is. All believers experience that. It's a, I mean, how many people can relate to what Paul says here? I think we can all relate, right? Another interpretation is that Paul is describing the experience of an unbeliever who has not yet been set free from sin. This is the cry of someone who has not received God's spirit, who has not accepted Yeshua, and is struggling to try and do what is right, but they just can't do it. And then at the end, he says, who's going to deliver me? Well, the answer is Yeshua. Yeshua can deliver me. And when you accept Yeshua, you get delivered from this debilitating cycle of failure and become redeemed. That's the second interpretation. Third interpretation is that Paul is describing the experience of an immature believer who has not yet been filled with the Spirit. So this is someone who, they've accepted Yeshua. They, you know, they've asked him into their heart. He's their personal Savior. But they're still missing something in their spirituality. They haven't yet been filled with the Spirit. They haven't yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that they can live a life of victory over sin. What do we think? <laughs> is, is, uh, should we expect mature believers to continue to struggle with sin? Or is that struggle something we can and should decisively overcome through the power of the Spirit? And what role does the Torah play in all this, this whole process? So these, these are the questions we're tackling today. Let's talk about the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer HaTov. We'll go to that slide in a second. Um, so this is a slight detour. Uh, I want to talk about rabbinic theology for a moment, because uh, rabbinic Judaism posits that humans have two inclinations, a good inclination, which is your Yetzer HaTov, and an evil inclination, the Yetzer Ra. Yetzer is, can be loosely translated as inclination, right? Humans have this desire to do good and this desire to do evil, and they're waging war against each other. Um, and I've heard some messianics argue that when Paul speaks of the flesh and the spirit, that he's talking about the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. And it's worth us taking a closer look at this claim and to see, is this the same thing that he's talking about? Are there insights that we can get from rabbinic Judaism in this regard. Let's look, first of all, at a passage from the Talmud. This is from Kiddushin 30b. This may be compared to a man who struck his son a strong blow and then put a plaster on his wound, saying to him, My son, as long as this plaster is on your wound, you can eat and drink at will and bathe in hot or cold water without fear. But if you remove it, it will break out into sores. Even so did the Holy One, blessed be he, speak unto Israel, My children, I created the evil desire, the Yetzer Hara, 
but I also created the Torah as its antidote. If you occupy yourself, yourselves with the Torah, you will not be delivered into his hand. For it is said, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be exalted? But if he, uh, that's a quote from when God is talking to Cain. Remember just before Cain kills Abel, God says, why is your face downcast? And, you know, choose what's right. But if ye do not occupy yourselves with the Torah, ye shall be delivered into his hand, for it is written, sin coucheth at the door. It's also from that same passage talking to, talking to Cain, right? Moreover, he is altogether preoccupi preoccupied with thee to make thee sin. For it is said, and unto thee shall be his desire. Yet if thou wilt, thou canst rule over him. For it is said, and thou shalt rule over him. So it's making a little midrash on that, that passage where God is speaking to Cain and giving, telling Cain, you know, don't choose the bad, choose the good. And it's talking about our evil inclination. Now, what are some of the things that stand out to you about this passage and the way it's describing the evil inclination? Maybe what's, what's similar or the same, perhaps, to what Paul says and what's different? Any thoughts? Yeah. D does that strike anyone as weird that they say that God created the evil inclination and, and like, gave it to his people? Does that? I thought that was weird when I read that. I, that seems different than what Paul would say, right? Yeah, that's one thing. Um, yeah. He created us with the ability to choose, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, does creating us with the ability to choose imply that God created a sinful inclination within humans? A propensity to sin? Here's another thing that stood out to me. What's the antidote in this passage? What's the antidote to the evil inclination? No, in... Uh, in the Talmud, what's the antidote? Torah. Torah is the antidote, right? What does Paul say in the passage we just read? Paul says the Torah was, well, I guess we didn't get there. Um, chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the Torah, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For Paul, the Torah is not the antidote. It's God's spirit is the antidote. Because, and it's not the Torah's fault. God, Paul goes to great lengths to prove that it's not the fault of the Torah that we sin, but that the Torah alone cannot help us overcome sin. We need God's help. Right? So that's, a, that's another striking difference, I think. Um, Notice also that in rabbinic theology, humans have the ability to overcome their evil inclination. You can never destroy it entirely, but it is possible to consistently resist the evil inclination and follow the good inclination. It's, people have a choice, right? Whereas you read what Paul says, Paul doesn't say, I want to do good, but I keep, but then I want to do evil kind of also. What does Paul say? He says, I want to do good, but I can't. Paul's not describing a battle where he sometimes wins and sometimes loses. He's describing a situation where 
despite all his best intentions, despite choosing to do good, he keeps doing evil. So that's another little difference with our passage. I'm not saying that the rabbinic model has no merit. I mean, from a psychological standpoint, yeah, we as humans have an inclination to do good, kind of mixed together with propensity to do bad. But the way it's analyzed and presented in rabbinic literature is not identical with what Paul is talking about here. Does that make sense? Uh, I want to look at just one other passage. This is from uh, Genesis Rabbah 9, verse 7. The rabbis don't see the evil inclination as a result of sin twisting human nature, but rather it's part of God's original plan of creation. Here's what they say. Rabbi Nachman said in Rabbi Samuel's name, Behold, it was good. He's quoting from Genesis, where God created the world and said, Behold, it was good, right? Behold, and it was good, refers to the good desire, the Yetzer Tov. And behold, it was very good, refers to the evil desire, the Yetzer Hara. It only says very good after man was created with both the good and bad inclinations. In all other cases, it only says, and God saw that it was good. Can then the evil desire be very good? That would be extraordinary. But without the evil desire, however, no man would build a house, take a wife, and beget children. And thus said Solomon, again, I considered all labor and all excelling in work, that it is a man's rivalry with his neighbor. Ecclesiastes 4.4. What do you think of that? What, what strikes you about this passage? Similarities, differences from Paul? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. This is, this is what this rabbinic model is more like a psychological analysis of human nature. Um, rather than, you know, what Paul is presenting is the spiritual dynamics of salvation and, and being redeemed through Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Is it weird to think of identifying very good <laughs> with the evil inclination? I think that's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that happened later in the story. Yeah. Not when God said it was very good. But yeah, I think, I think there is, there's value in this rabbinic analysis to a, an extent, right? I, I, I don't think it's like completely garbage. I think there are things that we can resonate with as humans in this. But I don't think it's the same as what Paul's talking about, right? I think there's some clear differences in subject matter between the two. So yeah, um, there's, yeah, to what extent does God giving us free choice mean that he instilled within us this evil inclination? Well, a big difference between this discussion, the rabbinic discussion, and Paul's approach to the topic is that Paul sees humans choosing to sin as distorting the entire picture, right? Um, human nature w became deformed as a result of sin, which is something that is not really brought up in the rabbinic framework, right? Um, there's no sense of original sin in these passages from the Talmud and Midrash. There's no sense that 
that sin had a once and for all effect when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Um, that's kind of downplayed a bit, right? So, yeah, there's some things maybe we can glean, but I don't think it helps us understand Paul to use this framework. Yeah, yeah, and that's Paul goes through that in chapter 5 and earlier in chapter 7. We didn't read those passages. Uh, but yeah, for Paul, definitely, it's, it's like the commandment came and sin sprang to life and I died. So there's, there's something about defining sin that pushes someone, <laughs> that makes sin come alive, right? Uh, he even says that uh, in chapter 5, before uh, sin was indeed in the world before the Torah was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, no Torah. Um, so it's, you don't have a definition of sin, right? How can you say, oh, that's sin, what you did there? Um, how can you say it's wrong for someone to marry their sister when God hasn't revealed that as a commandment yet, right? Um, yeah. So uh, um, there are some, 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 there's some overlap for sure, but, but overall, when Paul is talking about the flesh and the spirit, he's not talking about two natures within me desire to do good and a desire to do bad. It seems like for Paul, in Paul's theology, yes, there's this, there's this struggle between a desire to do good and a propensity towards evil, but this is a struggle in which he, we, as home, we as humans are hopelessly doomed in our struggle. Um, our own effort will not overcome it. Torah by itself will not overcome it, right? Because, uh, and it's not because there's anything wrong with Torah, but because we as humans are corrupted by sin and unable to attain to God's good and holy and righteous Torah. Um, all right, let's uh, move on here. So uh, I'm suggesting that the Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Hatov is not the best framework for understanding what Paul's saying here. Um, what are some of the main option for understanding Paul here? Well, uh, J.I. Packer suggests three main views on, uh, on Romans 7. And this is similar to what I already shared. First, the first one he identifies as the Augustinian model, uh, reform Calvinistic model, uh, in which Romans 7 is describing Paul's present experience as a mature believer. All right, so this is, this is the understanding of Romans 7 that, has, that Augustine uh, later in life came to adopt um, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Calvinists ever since have adopted this stance. Uh, so that is that, you know, Paul is describing the struggle that all believers go through. Um, you know, all mature believers continue to struggle with sin, and that's just, it's just the way it is. So that's one model. Paul the Christian, sometimes called. Uh, the second model is Wesleyan, uh, Christian perfectionism, Romans 7, as Paul the unbeliever. So John Wesley 
in concert with a lot of the early church fathers before Augustine, argues that Paul is describing the experience of someone who is not yet a believer. When you're not a believer, you strive to do good, but you just can't. Whereas when you, after you accept Yeshua, you can do good if you choose to. You still struggle, but it, you can actually choose to do what's right, and you can actually do it, right? So that's Wesley's view, and a lot of holiness uh, movement kind of uh, carried that on, uh, Methodism. Third model, Keswick, what, what J.I. Packer calls the Keswick model, Keswick holiness. Romans 7, as Paul, the, unfi- the unfilled Christian, he hasn't yet had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? So a lot of um, Pentecostal and similar holiness movement uh, views would take this approach to the passage. Paul is describing an experience of that this, this, this person is a believer um, because they desire to do good. And elsewhere, Paul describes unbelievers as not even wanting to do good, not even wanting to please God. Um, But here, the person wants to do what's right. They want to follow the Torah, but they can't. They just keep failing and struggling. And then, you know, the next chapter says, therefore, you know, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You know, the Holy Spirit comes along and fills you and enables you to walk in obedience to God. What do we think? (laughs) Which one is right? Well, there's two things about this. One is, is it possible for Paul to be describing someone else? Even though he says, I, he's using a first person, I do this, I do that. Is it possible that he's describing someone other than himself or maybe himself in the past? Why would he use present tense if he's describing the past? Here's what uh, J.I. Packer, I like this quote, he, he says, the idea that Paul, despite his shift from the plural we, denoting all Christians, to the first person singular, verse 14, is yet describing an experience which, so far as he is concerned, is purely hypothetical and imaginary. The idea, that is, that the emphatic I, ego, or aftosego, I myself, means not I at all, but you or someone else, and that the spontaneous outcry, wretched man that I am, was one that he had never himself uttered, seems altogether too artificial and theatrical to be treated as a serious option. He's got a point, right? But despite that, a lot of scholars have treated it as a serious option (laughs) Um, and come up with various ways of doing so. Uh, To be honest, I find it, difficult to, I, I, I find them ultimately unconvincing. It feels like they're striving against what's, what's just obvious. Like, it's one thing for Paul to be saying, I do this and that and that, and, and to have in mind more than just himself, right? Like, a lot of people would be able to relate to that and say, oh yeah, me too. But to suggest that Paul uses the word I to exclude himself from the conversation just seems hard to account for. Even if you bring up all these theories about Greek literary style and things like that. 
So that's on the one side. Here's the flip side, though. Look at the contrast between what Paul says in this passage that we read in Romans 7 and what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8. In Romans 6 and 8, Paul describes the position of believers, followers of Yeshua. And in Romans 7, he describes the wretched man. Look at the contrast. The wretched man is fleshly. Right? Paul said that in verse 14. I am fleshly, of the flesh. But believers are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Paul says, you are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. So which is it? The wretched man is possessed by indwelling sin. Sin dwells in me. Nothing good is in me, just sin is in me. Whereas believers have God's spirit dwelling in us. Having nothing good dwelling in me versus God's spirit. Sold as a slave to sin versus we're no longer enslaved to sin. Right? So the, the wretched man says, I, I'm sold as a slave to sin. But elsewhere, Paul says, we're not slaves to sin anymore. Held captive by the law of sin and the body of death versus sin has no dominion over you. We've been set free from sin. So which is it? Are we held captive to sin or are we set free from it? What do you think? I find these two things difficult to reconcile. On the one hand, it's hard to ignore the fact that Paul's speaking the first person in the present tense, I do this, I do that. On the other hand, it's hard to escape the contrast that Paul is painting between this picture of the wretched man and the true status that we have as followers of Yeshua. There is an intentional contrast that comes up, right? Especially when you get into, um, we didn't read much into chapter 8, but, you know, to me the contrast is too great to ignore. So, <laughs> kind of to um, tie these loose ends together, I'm arguing, I, I would argue that Paul is describing himself, he is speaking truthfully of his own experience, but he's, he's not describing a situation that we could, should consider normative. He's not describing how, you know, the model that we should attempt to live up to. It's like a lot of people who take the, the first option, we go back to, the, of those three options, a lot of people who take the mature Christian option that Paul is writing as a mature Christian here, and that's how mature. A lot of times it's like, oh, well, you know, Paul struggled with sin, so I feel better about myself. Look, look how much Paul struggled. Huh? Makes me not feel so bad. <laughs> and miss the contrast that Paul is trying to point, trying to paint here. On the flip side, I think a lot of people who take the other two positions have a head-in-the-sand approach to the fact that we do still continue to struggle with sin as, as mature believers. The fight's never over. It's an ongoing battle. And this is one of the ways in which I personally find Keswick's spirituality 
to be deficient. The idea with Keswick holiness, sanctification kind of thinking is that you just have to let go and let God. You try and do it in your own strength, you'll fail. Therefore, stop trying. Let God do it instead, and it'll just happen. And is that really the best advice? You know, Paul tells us to put on the armor of God to, you know, get ready for a fight. Paul doesn't tell us to just sit back and we're in the bleachers watching God fight it all for us. We're in the arena too, and God's helping us there, but, you know, we're, we're in the heat of it. I think it's easy. You know what? People today want everything now. I want to be patient now, right? I want to be holy now. I don't want to wait. It's this fast food kind of spirituality. If only I could have this amazing spiritual encounter that, boom, then I'm changed, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to fight this battle anymore. But I'm not convinced that that's a healthy spirituality, and I, I don't think that that's what Paul is describing here. So that's my suggestion as to how we ought to interpret this, that Paul is painting a contrast Saying, you know, but he's, he's speaking honestly when he talks, when he says, I do this. He's speaking honestly, but this is not meant to be the end of the story. There is victory that's possible, but it's a cooperative effort between us and God's spirit. And I want to look at two other passages that will hopefully help to uh, say the same thing. <laughs> um, there's a lot of parallels between this passage from Romans that we've been looking at, and Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, if you have your Bible handy. Galatians 5. Let's start in verse 16. Uh, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's, here we've got that contrast. Spirit versus flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the Torah's condemnation. There's a whole bunch of words that are in common with Romans 7. I just want to point some of this out. So we've got the term sarks, flesh, Pnevma or pnevmatikos, spirit, spiritual. Um, epithumo, uh, to desire, to covet. Uh, there's these desires that are against each other. Thelo, I want, I will, uh, something you want. Pio, to do. Nomos, the Torah, the law. Right? So there's so much vocabulary that's in common between these passages. In both Galatians 5 and in Romans chapter 6 to 8, really, Paul conveys the teaching that sin has been put to death in us as a decisive fact through the Messiah, and yet the practical outworking of that spiritual reality is an imperative incumbent upon us. It's up to us to put sin to death, even though it has already been put to death in Messiah. Um, especially significant is the, the phrase, uh, the things you want, that, that we're unable to do the things you want, right? The desires of the 
flesh or against the spirit, the desires of the spirit against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What did it say in Romans 7? I want to do what's right, but I can't, right? This struggle is keeping me from doing what I want to do. And so what's the answer? To say, well, that's just the way things are? No, the answer is to, to, to say, you know, live in the spirit. With the spirit's help, it's possible to live um, to, you're still in the battle, but you're able to have victory. The other passage I want to look at is Colossians 3. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it says kind of the same thing. It doesn't use a lot of the same words like Galatians does, but um, I think you'll see it's a similar, similar message. Uh, we'll read Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He uses the term earthly, but I think it's similar to when Paul elsewhere uses the term fleshly, like in Romans. So put to death. We're supposed to put it to death. It's, you know, it's, it's not a job that's ever finished, <laughs> this side of eternity, this side of Yeshua's coming, but, but it's, an, it's an obligation for us nonetheless to keep doing this. Uh, skip down to verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's this contrast between the spiritual reality of being dead to sin through Messiah and the necessary injunction to live that out by putting sin to death. I'm going to argue that in our spiritual walk, there's two major pitfalls that we need to avoid. One is the idea that we should consign ourselves to a losing battle with sin. And the other is the idea that we will ever, in this lifetime, reach a position of guaranteed success over sin. And I think that when properly understood, Romans gives no ground for either of these two things. Uh, both, you look at the broader context of Romans and other parallel passages that we've looked at, support the idea that while our status in Messiah takes us out of the realm of sin and death, it is still imperative upon us to live out that reality. And even if the full attainment is not possible in this life, we are nonetheless to strive for perfection as Paul states elsewhere. Philippians 3, 12 to 14, not that I have already arrived or I'm already perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Messiah Yeshua has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. I think those are really inspiring words right? We're, you know, we're never going to arrive, but we constantly strive for it. But Paul is not opposed to effort here. There's a, an interesting quote I read this past week. God's grace is not opposed to human effort. God's grace is opposed to earning, right? Nothing we can do can earn our salvation, can earn right standing with God. But that doesn't mean we just sit on the sidelines and do nothing, twiddling our thumbs. You know, Paul talks about striving here, and it's a good striving. 
right? Within God's grace, there is room for human effort. One more passage. Romans 8.13. Once we get out of chapter 7, it's no longer the wretched man talking. Paul says, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. We've been set free through the Spirit. He goes on and down to verse 13. He says, uh, if we, sorry, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're called to put sin to death, to mortify sin. Um, and this is a commandment to us. It's an imperative for us to do this. As believers, as followers of Yeshua, this is a daily task that's incumbent upon us. It's not an option. It's like, well, you know, the, the really elite believers, they, they can work on that if they want to, but, you know, as long as you just accept Yeshua, then you'll, you'll sneak in under the bar. <laughs> you'll get in the door, and that's, that's, that's all you need. The Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible doesn't present salvation as a one-off where you say the prayer and then you're in and then you never have to worry about anything else. The Bible talks about salvation as a new life. A new life. And we get to live that out. Right? It's life in Messiah. And part of living that out involves putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is something we can't do on our own, in our own strength, but something that Messiah does in us through the power of his spirit, working in cooperation with God's spirit. Last uh, quote, this is a quote from Craig Keener. He says, Paul's use of flesh and spirit refers to two spheres of existence in Adam or in Christ, not to two natures in a person. And I think that's good. That really sums it up. That's the ultimate question is, is where are we? Are we in Adam or are we in Messiah? As followers of Yeshua, we've been given the gift of a new life. And by God's grace, we have the privilege of being able to fight a battle that is not going to be doomed to failure right ultimately the holy spirit will achieve the total sanctification of our souls by the time we see him in glory it won't happen to its fullest here on earth but it's a it's a journey we're all called on and that's part of what it means to be a disciple of yeshua all right let's close with a word of prayer Father, thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. Thank you that through your Spirit, we do not have to walk in failure, but that you can empower us in this battle. Thank you, Father, that even when we do fail, even when we do stumble, that you are so ready to receive us and, forg and forgive us and cleanse us and give us a new start. I pray that you would strengthen all of us in this and that we would be able to 
support one another in this battle as we strive to put our, our sin to death and to live in your spirit. Pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.